0: Or you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, from the first epistle of Peter in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well first, let me say what a joy it is to be back here with uh, well, some of you, I guess, uh, by no means all, this Sunday. I've felt a gaping hole in my life since the stay-at-home order was issued. I've missed. Often with deep mourning, being with you and worshiping with you in this place that the Lord has graciously given us, I have missed more than that. Being able to exercise a pastoral ministry which depends upon being with you, seeing your faces and hearing your voices, there isn't a technology in the world that can replace that. Know that as I've prayed for you and have gone to the altar with you on my heart, that I've done that. Uh, that I've that I've gone to the altar with you on my heart. So it's somewhat strange this morning to be celebrating what we call in the lectionary Good Shepherd Sunday. For all of the history of the Book of Common Prayer up to the last 40 years, one of the Sundays following Easter Sunday was designated as Good Shepherd Sunday. In the earlier days, it was the third Sunday of Easter, and from 1662 on, it was the fourth Sunday in Easter. In the 70s, with the introduction of a three-year lectionary, this came only once every three years that you would read John chapter 10. So Good Shepherd Sunday was kind of on hold in two-year intervals. But now, this text from John 10 is read every fourth Sunday in Eastertide, and we have the drafters of the Book of Common Prayer 2019 to thank for that. Well, the other readings change from year to year, and that is the case not only in Anglicanism, but in the Roman Catholic Church and in parts of Lutheranism, that this is Good Shepherd Sunday. It is actually not a part of the Reformation tradition, it's a part of the medieval tradition. This practice actually reaches back to Rome in the 7th century, and later a lectionary that Charlemagne himself published throughout his empire. In that particular lectionary, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25 was always included as well, which by the way, you know, it's quite restrained for Charlemagne not to put in the part about honor the emperor. It's left out. But what is the meaning behind this conscious decision to read these texts in the middle of Easter. Well, let me begin by saying that we often think of Easter as simply the time in which we remember Jesus Christ's triumph over the gate and grave of death, in which he conquers death and puts it to flight, as one colleague says, giving us the hope of everlasting life. In recent years, I've come to see how this is true, very true, but the deeper truth is that Easter tells a story the story of the Lord's triumph over death, yes, but also of his ascension to the right hand of the Father, those last ten days of Eastertide, culminating in the descent of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which brings Easter to a close. You see, reading these words this morning, and I'll quote just a few from each reading, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And even from the psalter, he shall feed me in green pastures and lead me forth beside the waters of comfort. He shall refresh my soul and bring bring me forth in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All of these speak, even the psalm, prophetically to the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ being that of leading us into the very glory of God, not in some esoteric, bodiless afterlife, but the enjoyment of the vision of God in the bodies we have now with the eyeballs we have now, only resurrected, renewed, and redeemed to be able to receive that blessed vision. It is this that Peter envisions in speaking of the Lord as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He uses a word there which which appears often in the New Testament and in other contexts. It's the word episkopos. We often translate that as bishop, overseer. Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter, in this letter, has been speaking to the Christians of Galatia, Bithynia, Pontus, and Asia about the sort of lives they ought to live as people under various authority structures, whether it be as citizens of an empire, or husbands, or wives, or as servants of masters. They are to commit to doing good, committing no sin, so that if they suffer, they suffer for doing good and not for doing evil. All of this is to be exercised as a people who have received the imperishable inheritance received for us at the right hand of God. Not as a people under these various authority structures as we are a people under the authority of the chief shepherd and overseer, Jesus Christ, who is the authority over all authority. Ancient Christians most often decorated the walls of their churches and catacombs with some kind of image of this overseer, of this shepherd, the good shepherd. It is without a doubt the most popular image in the ancient church. And it is no doubt connected with this insistence on reading from John chapter 10 in, Easter, in Eastertide. It is also an image that if some nefarious forces among the pagans found it, they wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> they certainly had in mind some kind of idea of Jesus Christ being the shepherd of the dead, guiding the souls of the faithful departed through the valley of the shadow of death to the peace of the heavenly Jerusalem. But while this was an earthly image, usually of Jesus holding a lamb, as it is in our stained glass window from a hundred years ago, that wonderful image of Jesus the good shepherd, There are often, and there are in that image as well, celestial motifs of the stars, the sun, and the moon, perhaps the sun rising, as it is there. The idea is that Jesus is Lord not only of the earth, but of the heavens as well. He is the king of the whole created order, both visible and invisible, earthly and heavenly, the universal savior, not just of a nation, but of the whole cosmos. In returning to this important remembrance of Jesus, the good shepherd, the church returns to the celebration of more than just a personal savior what we celebrate is the universal providence of God who has taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and in that flesh has triumphed over sin and death in His death and resurrection. On this day, what we think about is not something sentimental, but upon the God who rules, shepherds, and oversees the universe. During this time of great distress, Christians do well to remember that it is not sentimentality that ultimately gives us hope. Sentiment can hardly be the basis upon which we live our lives. We need something far more substantial, far more meaty, far more universal, and far more true. We need proof that God actually delights in creation and continues to uphold it. Proof that He loves us. Proof that He is working still. We Christians have that proof in the resurrection of Jesus. We have that proof in He who rises with wounds in His hands and feet and in His side. It's one of the reasons I'm so Overjoyed to have an image of the resurrection up in the altar that we can look at all the time. Except Lent, of course. We have it further in the proof of our own lives that the risen Christ has shepherded us and guided us in right pathways for his name's sake. All of us should be able to look and say something like this What would my life be like if I wasn't a Christian? How would I live? How would I sleep? What would I do? What would my days be like? What would my family be like? What would my marriage be like? What would my relationships be like? We should have that proof of the resurrection in our own resurrected lives. But finally, we will have that proof when we walk through death. And are led through that valley by a loving shepherd who leads us to all that he is, remaking us in his image, redeeming us by his grace. You see, hirelings, they don't consider what is good for the sheep. They only consider how they can profit, how they can use the sheep for momentary pleasure. They don't think about wool, they think about mutton. They do not consider what is good for the sheep. They do not know how to balance what is harsh, the salve of good judgment and guidance and care with meekness and kindness. Good shepherds seek not temporary, momentary glory, not sentimental comfort, but fruitfulness in the flock. That the flock would not only flourish, but be saved from all who would seek to do it harm. I remember several years ago I was in Spain walking and uh, and uh, I, I met a shepherd and we got to talking and he was he was actually sharing cheese with me from his sheep. And, and I'll never forget this. I said, you know, what's it like being a shepherd? Oh, it's, 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 not, it's, 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 a, it's a good life. The dogs really help. And then he said, the big key is to keep them from getting bloody. Because you can't wash blood out of wool. You have to keep them safe. You have to guard them. Hirelings seek only what is expedient to kill and destroy But the good shepherd seeks to watchfully care over all that is his own, which is everything that is or ever will be, despite our foolishness, despite our pride, and despite our wanderings. As we gather yet again to receive this holy sacrament, which we celebrate today, we remember the Lord who pours out this life for the sheep from his risen body who leads us to heavenly glory. That's what this image shows forth as Jesus points Points to this sacrament, which is a sign and pledge of that love and that promise. The Good Shepherd feeding us His very self. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.